Welcome to the energy update presented by the Institute for Energy Research for the week of August 17th, 2020. I'm Alex Stevens, and I'm joined by IER's Deputy Director of Public Policy, Jordan McGillis. Jordan, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Alex. I'm sitting here in balmy Arizona, where we have reliable electricity. I'm able to sit in comfortable air conditioning. Yeah, well, that's uh, sort of the topic for today. There's two blogs that we want to highlight for the audience this week. First is an article discussing how renewable energy mandates are leading to electricity shortages and high prices in California. And Jordan, you're a former resident of the state of California, so I'm going to let you talk about this blog and the policies that have led up to these recurring blackouts. It really is amazing, Alex. Um, I've lived in California off and on for the course of about 20 years. And it seems like things politically never really go in the right direction there. They're just progressively becoming more nonsensical, particularly with respect to energy issues. In 2001, California experienced really debilitating rolling blackouts, and it kind of stood in public memory as a, as a horrible time, a time of mismanagement, of, of government mismanagement. It even led to the to a recall election of the governor. Uh, it has been about 20 years since California had anything that catastrophic happen um, with respect to electricity until 2019. Last fall, things started to get very bleak again. Uh, PG&E, which is the major utility in the northern part of the state, instituted um, rolling blackouts over a period of days last fall uh, because it was concerned about wildfires damaging some of its transmission lines as had happened in the past. Um, and so it self-imposed some, some shutdowns uh, in order to keep um, really catastrophic things from happening. So that was a bit of a harbinger. And then again this year, just over the weekend, uh, California, almost across a whole state, had to implement rolling blackouts over the weekend. And the story we're being told, um, if you were to listen to the governor or to some of the more aggressive commentators for renewable energy, is that this is because of climate change. Higher temperatures are leading to greater electricity demand, and California's grid simply can't keep up um, with the power that's necessary for air conditioning. But that is not the truth. The truth is that this is self-imposed by California's environmental policies. California has implemented a 60% renewable electricity mandate by the year 2030. Right now, it's at about 33%. Um, on an average basis of its electricity generation. That's all good and well for much of the year. But when we do see some temperature spikes, as we saw over the weekend, we see significant increases in demand because uh, for the most part, you don't, need you don't need air conditioning on the California coast in cities like LA, San Diego, San Francisco. But over the weekend, temperatures crept up toward the 90s, toward 100s in some of the inland areas. Demand for electricity spiked as a result. and when the wind isn't blowing and uh, when the sun goes down at night and that temperature is still high, there simply is not enough electricity available for the grid to keep all of, all of California's 40 million residents comfortable. Uh, and so rolling blackouts were implemented. About 4 million people were affected um, up and down the state. And it is not because of extreme weather. Uh, I mentioned I'm sitting right now in Arizona. It's 110 degrees outside. and there's no problem delivering electricity to every single household in Arizona that, that wants it. Uh, the problem in California is the sources of electricity that are being politically mandated and that those are unreliable sources. 
wind and solar electricity simply cannot be relied upon when they're needed most. And California will only get worse in this regard as it uh, moves closer to that 60% mandate by 2030. People are leaving California in droves, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but things like this, which make life more difficult on a daily basis, are one of the big drivers. And now you, Alex, had, uh, had an article of your own which talks about Germany's electricity policies and um, what they call the Energiewende. It relates to California's in that um, it has some pretty stringent mandates of its own. Do you want to enlighten us on what's happening uh, over in Germany? Yeah, it's sort of similar. They haven't seen the reliability issues like in California, but basically um, in 2010, Germany started to transition away from fossil fuels and they set out targets to reduce uh, their greenhouse gas emissions by 80 to 95 percent by the year 2050. And then they set renewable energy targets, 60 percent renewable energy target by uh, by 2050. And uh, shortly after the, their legislature passed that, uh, the Fumashika nuclear accident took place, and uh, it put a lot of pressure on their legislature there to also prevent them from using uh, nuclear energy in this energy transition. So their shift away from fossil fuels has been pretty much a shift towards uh, wind and solar energy. Um, last year, uh, renewable energy share in Germany increased by 5.4%, and its total was 46%. Um, so they've made pretty significant progress in this direction. Um, but the result of this has been that German households uh, and industry pay the highest electricity prices in Europe. And to just give some context to that, according to the World Bank, the average price of electricity in Germany in uh, 2019 was 32.2 cents per kilowatt hour. And if you compare that to the United States, uh, the U.S. was about 17.1 U.S. cents per kilowatt hour. Um, so it's close to double the, uh, the costs there in Germany. And sort of an interesting thing this summer is that th the way that Germany's energy transition has been structured, it's driven a lot by a financing system that forces uh, German power consumers to finance wind and solar projects through a sur surcharge in their monthly electric bills. And these surcharges are based on the difference between payments made to investors and then the, and the wholesale power prices. And uh, because of COVID, uh, demand for electricity has dropped quite a bit, and the wholesale power prices have fallen about 20% since January. So that gap that determines the surcharge has grown incredibly, and these surcharges have basically skyrocketed over the summer. And uh, result of this is basically Angela Merkel's had to step in and subsidize these increases in the surcharges out of uh, Germany's budget. Germany hasn't seen the reliability issues like California has, and I think there's probably a bunch of reasons for that. But it's still a cautionary tale I think for people here in the U.S., as, as, as we see calls to move towards 100% renewable energy and things, uh, these high prices are a pretty predictable outcome of basically the political interventions in the energy markets there. And uh, it's something that we are seeing now in California as well. If I'm not mistaken, Germany's transition, um, it has, as you mentioned, eschewed nuclear power. Um, but as a result, there's been a, a reinvestment 
into coal in some places, um, I believe. So it's actually, they have a rather contradictory policy where uh, their overarching goal is to lower emissions, but then they had the overreaction to the Fukushima disaster. And so they took nuclear out of play. And I believe that they're, they're using coal in higher um, volumes than they, than they were in the recent past. Yeah, there are there have been new coal plants that have opened in the past couple of years. I do believe that they've taken legislative action though to phase out coal by I want to say it's like 2023. I don't have that number off the top of my head, but it, it's mm-hmm. it's like it's relatively soon. So, well, we we uh often frame this as let's look to Europe to see what what the future might look like for the United States on the energy front and those electricity prices are a bit worrisome, but perhaps Germans should look at California and realize that they may have some reliability issues coming their way um, as they do phase away from from coal. And the price issue is something that we are seeing in the US. California is far more expensive. It's not just less reliable, it's more expensive. Um, I believe it's 50% more expensive per kilowatt hour uh, at the residential level in California than it is in its neighbors, Nevada and and Arizona. And to add insult to injury, California often has to pay those states to take its excess solar that's generated in the middle of the day um, when it's when it's frankly not needed. So California is really harming itself in, in a multitude of ways. It's not just the reliability, um, but the cost as well, where people are paying significantly more than the US average. Um, I want to say California has the highest electricity rates on the mainland U.S. There may be a New England state or two that's up in its ballpark, but um, other than Hawaii, California really stands out in the western U.S. as a high-cost electricity state, and they're not getting that reliable service in return. Yeah, and I think the big picture takeaway from all this is that we're starting to see the consequences of years of trying to steer energy markets in the direction of predetermined outcomes. And mm-hmm. now governments are scrambling in sort of patchwork ways to try to, I guess, fix the unintended consequences of their energy planning. And unfortunately, what all this has done is just create a lot of disorder for people who are living in California, certainly, and um, very high energy prices for people in Germany there. You're right. With the the surcharge shenanigans in Germany, we're seeing this. And uh, in California, Governor Newsom, um, in, a, in a similar move in terms of the scrambling that you're referring to, he just instituted a suspension of, of certain air quality standards that are enabling more use of portable generators. So rather than simply having robust baseload power from, from nuclear, which is being phased out in California, uh, like San Onofre, which has been mothballed, or from natural gas, which is also being sidelined, um, we're now utilizing portable, you know, maybe it's from oil, uh, which we know is a is a less efficient means of generating electricity. So you've got these ri- really ridiculous things occurring that would not be occurring if people were left free to coordinate and make decisions based on the demands of the market. 
Absolutely. One other thing I just want to highlight for this week for our listeners is uh, the latest episode of the Plugged In podcast. Last week, I sat down with Lisa Linoz of the Wind Action Group to discuss subsidies for wind energy and the role that they played in the growth of the wind industry here in the U.S. And these issues are pretty related to uh, what Jordan and I have been discussing here. So here's a clip from that episode. I wonder if we could go back to the beginning here and sort of explain the origins of the wind industry in the U.S. and its growth over the past uh, two or three decades. So really, there was some wind energy built in the 80s. That's a lot of what you see, those old turbines that really span maybe 45 feet tall. They might be a little bit taller. They look like fans. They look like house fans. And there was a push for those. That was about the extent of the, the uh, level of the technology at the time, and this was then again in the early 80s, when there was a first effort to start subsidizing these projects, mostly in California. And then that, that pretty much really towards the end of the 80s, so during the Reagan administration, it almost just died out. It almost just, they, they weren't going anywhere. They weren't economical. They were always failing. Um, so there were a lot of issues with the technology and the, the inability to sustain itself without subsidies. Then in 1992, um, that's when the production tax credit was introduced, and that is a tax that is a, a tax credit based on production. So for every kilowatt an, kilowatt hour of electricity generated by wind project, um, it gets paid a subsidy. And uh, back then, it was 1.5 cents a kilowatt hour. And in that that generation, that subsidy to some extent did push wind development, but not a lot. I, I, I want to say by by the year 2000, I'm going from memory here, but it, it was le- certainly less than 5,000 megawatts in the country. I, I want to say it was closer to like, but maybe around 3,000 megawatts. I'm, I'm, I'm just, it was low compared to what we have today, which is 107,000 megawatts. But still, uh, even though the production tax credit was there and projects were being built, they were largely, again, in the west of the Mississippi, California, some of Minnesota, a little in Texas, um, not not what we see today. And it really wasn't until, and and that kind of inched along um, for a variety of reasons, partly due to cost of energy, it was tied to cost of energy as well as the subsidies. It really didn't take off until the Obama administration had gotten in place. So uh, maybe just a little bit before that. By I want to say by 2006, we had about 11,000 megawatts of wind. Again, that's one-tenth, or rather um, 10% of what we have operating today. Um, and then it Took off, then then it all it was all about the subsidies at that point. The the under when the Obama administration passed through his subsidy his um, stimulus package, the 2009 stimulus package, that set that created a program called the 1603 Cash Grant Program, and basically that said for instead of the production tax credit the developers would be allowed to get a direct cash outlay, outlay from Treasury equivalent to what they would earn through the production tax credit. And it was just a, it was a flat-out payment from the federal government. that We said, okay, if you're, and it, equal to 30% of their capital costs. And that drove an enormous amount of development. And that was through the period from 2009 to 2012. And then in that time from 2012 on, Turbines started getting bigger, 
capacity factors started growing, increasing, so they were, every individual turbine was producing more electricity than what its predecessor turbine would be. Uh, there was a rush to get as much built as possible, and now um, it's the, it is now at the point where the production tax credit at this point is, you know, the, a full production tax credit, uh, so a project earning the uh, full PTC would get 2.5 cents kilowatt hour, but because the turbines are producing so much, so many more kilowatt hours than they did back in 1992, that 2.5 cents is worth as much as 65 percent of the capital cost of the project. So what it started out was a very the PTC was a small component back in 1992, so it really wasn't enough to drive that much, and, and capacity factors were very low on the turbines. Fast forward to today, nearly 30 years later, huge turbines, high production, lower cost for building because costs have come down. That production tax credit that we're paying out now is upwards of 65% of the capital cost. So the public is paying for most of the cost of that project, and that's why it's taking, why it's taken off, why it's so entrenched at this point, and why. Um, it's, it, it will continue to grow like that. The Plugged In podcast, along with the articles that Jordan and I discussed today, can be found at our website, instituteforenergyresearch.org. Thank you for listening. Until next week, I'm Alex Stevens.